0: The New Testament reading is taken from Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 14, to chapter 4, verse 5. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer.
1: Thanks, Catherine. Uh, Good morning. A fisherman in the Philippines one day came across uh, a large rock whilst fishing. And so taken was he by this large uh, pale rock uh, that he dragged it out of the river and he kept it under his bed for the next 10 years. When he had to move to another part of the country, he asked his aunt uh, to look after the rock for him. But she convinced him to do something else. Uh, she said, You should hand this over to the city government. And when he did, he discovered that it wasn't a rock at all. It was a giant pearl weighing 34 kilograms, and it was worth more than $100 million. This morning, we come to uh, the very middle, the very heart of Paul's letter to Timothy as he remains in Ephesus to establish a church there. And in many ways, I think it's fair to say it's been pretty hard going over the last few weeks. I'm pretty sure Ken and Ben would agree that we've covered some potentially tricky ground. Paul, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, has instructed Timothy to defend the church against false teaching and to uphold true doctrine. Uh, He's taught candidly about his own sinfulness and his uh undeservingness of God's grace. He's told us that we need to pray for everyone, even the leaders that we struggle to respect. He's warned us about those who are in danger of making a shipwreck of their faith. He's challenged us about the respective roles of men and women in the church. uh, And he's given uh, weighty requirements for those who would call themselves leaders. What on earth has that got to do with a fisherman in the Philippines, you might reasonably be asking. Well, all of this sounds an awful lot like hard work, doesn't it? All these instructions and demands that Paul has given Timothy and through him to his church could sound like tough going. And what with Ken laying on the fact that we've got to pay for it ourselves, then you could be left thinking, well, what is the point in all this? Yet, if, like that fisherman, we really understand the true nature of what the church is and the privilege of what it gets to do and the glory of its head and savior, Jesus, well, then chapters one to three and the instructions therein, and five and six as we come to them later, well, they're not going to suddenly become easy, but they're going to feel a lot more like lifting a giant pearl than dragging a huge rock. The title this morning is What the Church Is and What It Should Do, and so we're going to uh, split up this morning uh, in that way, first looking at what the church is uh, and then uh, what it should do. So if you're not there already, do uh, turn up in your Bibles to page 992, um, and that should get you to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Uh, and let's look at verse 14 and 15 together first. It's in these verses that Paul spells out absolutely explicitly his purpose in writing to Timothy. If you've been paying attention over the last couple of weeks, uh, both uh, Ken and Ben have referenced this verse. I'm not at all annoyed that they've uh, you know, strayed over into my verses, Just, you know, stay in your own lane. But if you've been particularly uh, observant, you'll have seen that actually this verse is quoted in the title slide graphics for this whole series, and it really does get to the heart of the letter. So why is Paul writing to Timothy and to us through him? Well, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Paul wants to be with Timothy and he wants to be with uh, the church that he's leading in Ephesus in person. We know that longing, don't we? Especially over the last couple of years. It almost sounds like Paul is waiting on uh, the results of PCR tests. I hope to be with you, but if I have to delay, then, well... And the past three chapters have been about Paul telling Timothy, well, this is how the church ought to act. This is how it ought to live. Specifically, though, he's seeking to teach the church how to be the church. He goes on to say, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This is an incredible verse. But it's a verse which we might be tempted to pass over quickly. Paul telling us how to behave as church could sound a bit like a, a parent, uh, quietly but firmly telling his children off, perhaps for running down the stairs too quickly, or for pushing in to get a biscuit for everybody else. I'm sure that's unfamiliar to everybody else. We're in danger, though, of missing just how stunning a statement it is to say that the church is God's house. That being church means being part of God's family and that his family, this people, is the very place where God himself lives. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as the living God in stark contrast to the dead and useless idols which the nations around Israel choose to worship instead. Yahweh was not like them. He was alive. He was living. He was active in the world. And he was terrifying. (laughs) Specifically, it was terrifying because he is absolutely, perfectly, purely holy. And that holiness was so pure that it was deadly, even to God's people, the Israelites. And so God had to live in restricted form, in, in a tabernacle, in a tent, and in a temple. And those places were designed in an absolutely precise way. Not because God is fussy about church buildings, but because his holiness is deadly to sinful people and they needed protecting. Now, though, in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. God used to live in tabernacles. He used to live in tents. He used to live in a temple. But now, because of Jesus, he lives by his spirit in each one of you as a living stone. And when you come together as the gathered people of God, in the name of Jesus, to worship by the Spirit in the truth of God's word, then in a very special and particular way, that is where the awesome and holy living God, Yahweh, resides. Is where God lives. I can remember a few years back talking to one of my neighbors about um, come in to lead the service on a Sunday morning and he said, oh, so it's a little bit like a kids football match then That one of you has to be the referee each week and I guess you can understand somebody who's not very familiar with church like my neighbour would see it as something like that it's a hobby and in a club and you need people to do certain things and so someone has to take their turn but perhaps those of us who are familiar with church attempted to treat it that way too Here's a safe place where like minded people can come together to get their weekly fix of religion. Now, of course, that's not entirely untrue, is it? It's just a lot less than what's really going on here. The local church is the place where God dwells. Ephesians 3, verse 10 goes on to say that the church is where the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Literally, the church is the place where the universe fixes as it gaze to get a handle on just how incredible God is. God's manifold, his complex, his interactive grace working through the church shows off his glory. The church is where ruined sinners like Paul are welcomed in and offered grace. It's where leaders learn to serve instead of rule. It's where the powerful show their absolute dependence in prayer. It's where the beautiful choose to be modest. It's where consciences are washed and where people are made new. It's not a hobby. It's not a club. It's not a game. This is God's house, the place where the living God chooses to dwell, and we get to live in it. It's an immense and incredible privilege, but one in which we're liable to forget too easily. Second, the local church secures and celebrates the truth. Verse 15 goes on to say, after declaring that the church is the home of the living God, that it is a pillar and a buttress or a foundation of the truth. The next part of the church's essential nature is described using architectural terms. Uh, And let me tell you this morning, I've got a little bit of experience here. I, I did my work experience 20 odd years ago in an architect's office, and I learned to fold really big sheets of paper in a very precise way and not an awful lot else. Uh, so my architectural knowledge is pretty much limited to what Kevin McLeod says on grand designs. But I don't think this is too difficult to get our minds around. Pillars and buttresses are easy to understand because they both essentially do the same job. They strengthen and they support things. In the case of buttresses, that's normally walls. And in the case of pillars, well, just look around. you have probably sat next to one. It's holding up the roof. That's what those things do. And the local church is to do the same thing. It is to support, it is to hold up, it is to lift up the truth. What does that mean? Well, it means, at the very least, the church is an organization that is absolutely committed and concerned for the truth. Paul's already commanded in the earlier chapters, Timothy, uh, to defend against false teaching and to practice true doctrine. As we move through the letter, it takes an increasing concern about our consciences and our behavior. He wants what we think, our orthodoxy, and what we do, our orthopraxy, to line up. You can't have one without the other. You can't isolate behavior, love and compassion and service from truth-telling. The church ought to be a place where we teach and train and wrestle together with what the truth is. We're places where we work hard to understand what God is saying to us through his word and where we help one another to live that out in our lives. Jesus is the ultimate example of this for us, isn't he? He was full of grace and truth. He embodied unimaginable compassion and grace and mercy to the least deserving whilst also Perfectly and straightforwardly telling the truth to us. Now, I guess we might think that uh, certain types of churches are more likely than others to uh, be in danger of telling the truth without showing mercy. And perhaps that others are more in danger of showing compassion and mercy, but of fudging the truth. In reality, though, both of those positions are impossible. You can't tell the real truth, the truth of, of the gospel without showing mercy. And you can't show real mercy and compassion without telling people the truth. What does that look like for us in practice? Well, let's move on now. After considering what the church is, the home of the living God, and a support and a buttress to the truth, to thinking about what this church should do. We're going to come back to look at uh, the great last verse of chapter 3 at the end. Uh, But for now, let's take a look at chapter 4. And verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth we've been told. Its very nature is to secure and to celebrate the truth of the gospel. Here Paul shows us just why that is so important. Because the Holy Spirit is saying through the scriptures that in the later times, in other words, between Jesus' first and second comings, there are going to be people who leave the faith. There are going to be those who claim to be followers of Jesus who turned out not to be followers of Jesus. Perhaps you know somebody like that, somebody who looked like they were wholeheartedly and with conviction and and joy following Jesus, but now who are nowhere, who are apart from him. How does that happen? There's a particular context of what Paul is uh, teaching uh, and talking to Timothy about here in Ephesus, but there's a timeless pattern beneath that. Here in Ephesus, some Jewish teachers and uh, later Greek philosophers are going to take up the idea that the physical world, and particularly the body, is somehow unspiritual. It's tainted, it's, it's, it's dirty. If you want to know God, if you want to be truly spiritual, then you'll abandon fleshly desires. The way that it works out here was that uh, the Ephesians were being told to um, be abstinent from certain types of food, not to eat them and to rule out marriage and and therefore sex. That's where we get to in verse 3, but look at how people get to that place. This warped morality, this unspiritual behavior doesn't spring up out of the ground. It comes via listening to unsound personalities. This behavior is influenced by insincere liars, Paul says, whose consciences are seared. They're the exact opposite of the trusted overseers, which we saw in the first part of chapter 3. These are people who don't even believe the message that they're proclaiming. These are people whose consciences don't even know what the truth looks like anymore because over time they've become dull. Paul says they've been seared. The picture is there like when a surgeon goes into a nerve ending and and cauterizes it so it can't feel anymore. Paul says that there's a danger that if we're so far away from the truth, if we if we stop taking care, then our nervous system, our spiritual nervous system, becomes dull to the truth. Our hearts become hardened. So we ended up listening to liars who, verse 1 says, are teaching things which are literally diabolical, which are demonic, which have their origin in Satan, the father of lies. This is why upholding and defending and living for the truth is so important because if we don't take care if we don't keep watch on our hearts then people can wander from the truth and that reveals people who never knew it in the first place we end up trusting in ourselves like these people and and our own behaviour and restrictive practices and we think that those things will qualify us before God and not his grace Paul doesn't stop there though he doesn't just tell us what the problem is and what the dangers are. He shows us the radical and beautiful alternative, which is the local church living the truth joyfully. Look at verse 3 again with me. He talks about those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We fight as a church untruths and unbelief by contending for the truth. But we also fight untruth by living out the truth joyfully. Now Paul says clearly here that it's wrong to deny marriage and to say that certain foods should be off the menu because these are good gifts from God. But he also calls the church those that believe in their minds and who know in their hearts that these things are true, to give thanks to God for them. God's creation, God's plan for human life is good. It's meaningful, it's joyful, it's hopeful, it's generous, it's satisfying, it's, it's full of wisdom and truth and beauty. And God's church ought to live like that, it's true. God's church accepts God's gift with understanding through God's words and with thanks through prayer and worship. Or Think of it like this. Um, When you go home and you sit down to your Sunday lunch, whatever that is, and you give thanks to God, you say grace, you're not just stating a theological truth uh, that ultimately all, all that food has its source, not in the supermarket or the farmer, but in the God who made it. No, you're telling your hearts a deeper truth—that God loves you and cares for you so much that He will provide for your daily needs. That part of His wonderful, generous, creative character is to give us food and to help us to enjoy it. But it's not just food. G.K. Chesterton, as ever, goes further. He says this: "You say grace before meals. All right." But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching or painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if we receive it with thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for his creation, for his good gifts, and understanding just how good those gifts are through his word is the job of the church. And showing that to the watching world demonstrates God's goodness. But ultimately, and most supremely, that means knowing and rejoicing in God's greatest gift, Jesus. The second thing that the church should do, therefore, and the thing that I want to end with this morning is declaring and enjoying the glory of Jesus and let's finish with that final and stunning verse of chapter 3 verse 16 which says this great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifest in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by the angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory where does the power, where does the ability, where does the motivation come from for the church to live out what Paul demands of it? How can us as a local church be the place where the living God dwells? How can we live lives that show the watching universe just how good God is? How can we give thanks to all, for all that God has given us? How can we obey uh, the commands to watch out for false doctrine, uh, to serve one another, to pray for our leaders? How does that not feel like pushing a giant rock up a hill? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the center of this letter. Uh, physically, that's true, but, but spiritually. And verse 16 uh, probably is, is likely an early Christian hymn or, or a creed which Paul is quoting and it begins with an admission. It begins with a confession that the truth about Jesus is almost so amazing that we can't really express it, can't really get our heads around it. There's so much that could be said about this verse, but let me just say this. When, when Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, he's not talking about some secret. He's not saying that godliness is, is somehow kind of just out of our reach, he's actually saying the complete opposite he's saying that the mystery of God's plan of redemption and salvation has been made clear to us, made obvious, made beautiful in Jesus. He's shown us what that looks like. He is the the key that unlocks God's truth and makes sense of it. It's like if you uh, watch a film or or read a book that's got a, a twist at the end, and when you read it, you kind of begin to see how the rest of the book has always been lining up and getting ready for this plot twist. That's what Jesus is. And so when Paul says, great indeed, we confess, it's the mystery of godliness, he's not exasperated. He's just saying, this is incredible. In the next three verses in, in that creed, there's, there's a summary of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And there's so much that can be said about it. There's so many different ways that you can, you can kind of try and split it up and, and understand it. Perhaps the best is to think of it as as three kind of couplets comparing what is going on in the spiritual world with what is also happening on the earth here. Simply put, it, it describes the gospel. It describes Jesus coming to the earth in the flesh, full of grace and truth, and his perfect death. It reminds us that that death was vindicated by the Spirit, that Jesus' death was proved perfect by his death defeating resurrection. It reminds us that now, Jesus is seen by the angels in heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Lamb who was slain. But he's not just seen there, he's proclaimed among the nations, and so the sun will not go down today on people celebrating who Jesus is. He's believed upon now in the world, in our lives day by day, he's the source of Christian life. And he's taken up in glory. He's in heaven where he will be celebrated forever, for all eternity. Seen for who he really is and for all he's really worth. And so it's by coming back to Jesus and by glorying in what he has done and by coming again to the mystery of, the godly, of the godliness in Jesus that these incredible truths can become true, that the local church is the place where the living God dwells, that the local church is responsible for upholding and celebrating the truth, that the local church can live that truth joyfully and with thanksgiving, because it can do all these things, because it glories in the gospel of its founder and its perfecter, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the incredible gift that it is to be called your people, for the almost incomprehensible reality that the living God chooses to make his home among us. Lord, we struggle to get our heads around that. We struggle to believe that it's true. Lord, we struggle too as well to hear the commands of Paul's and the great responsibilities that you place upon the church, and we think... can't do this but Lord we thank you for the mystery of godliness in Jesus Lord we thank you that he has come to earth that he did die and that he has risen again and Lord we pray that because of him and through him and his spirit you would make us into your church and that you'd help us to declare your glory to a watching world in Jesus name we ask amen